A retiring Dr. Indiana Jones is pulled back into one last adventure by his goddaughter, but will her debt and love of money lead him to ruin or to redemption? Are you just watching episode 142, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And today we're talking about a revival of a saga that we probably grew up with. I'm trying to remember, when did the first movie come out? It was in the 80s, wasn't it? I feel like it was it? the 80s, yeah. 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 So we kind of grew up with this one. And I do believe I've seen none of them in the theater, except this one. <laughs> I was looking back over it, and I may have seen The Last Crusade in the theater, but I don't really recall seeing it in the theater. So that's. I honestly don't remember if I saw the first one in the theaters. Yeah. It might have been on Laserdisc. <laughs> Or VHS, I don't know. <laughs> do, do the young people even know what VHS is? <laughs> it was beta. <laughs> no, we didn't have a beta player. Yeah. All right, so now that we've dated ourselves. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I thought that watching Indiana Jones would be a good movie to discuss for July. There were a few to choose from for this month. I still am planning to go see Sound of Freedom, which I encourage everybody to go see. It's, I think it's one of those movies that as Christians and conservatives in this country, we really should support this movie. It is an, not Indiana Jones, but The Sound of Freedom. It is a, a movie that is a independent film dealing with topics that Hollywood and the you know, the elites don't want anybody to watch and they don't want this movie to succeed. So I think we should go prove them wrong and go see the movie. I don't know. We probably won't get this episode actually out for a couple of weeks. So it'll be interesting to see whether the <laughs> Sound of Freedom is still in theaters when we yeah. post this. But it's definitely a movie that they are working very hard to keep in theaters. And if you haven't the money... To see a movie in a theater, I strongly suggest you go check out the Sound of Freedom website because they are paying it forward for people to get free tickets if you can't afford to go. So that is worth going and checking out if it's still in theaters once we get this episode posted. All right. So back to Indiana Jones. And the Dial of Destiny. The Dial of Destiny. Yeah. This is a interesting movie because... After The Last Crusade, I think everybody kind of thought Indiana Jones was done. You know, it's like we he had his last crusade, his final crusade. His last hurrah. And, you know, Harrison Ford's not getting any younger. In fact, he's getting quite a bit older. And it's not like you can go back and film things when he was young. He is now, what did you say, in his 80s? and 81, yeah. 81, yep. so... And I think they filmed this maybe, what, a year, two years ago? So he would have been in his late yeah. 70s. So this movie is got a lot of CGI in it. What I guess what they would call deep faking Indiana Jones in his younger years. And it's got a flashback. I, I wouldn't call it deep faking. I call it de-aging. De-aging, uh, yeah, that's probably. Because this would have specifically used mocap to do it. Right. And deep faking is entirely AI to do it. It wouldn't necessarily be de-aging either because a good bit of the movie is not him. 
So they would have been filming oh, yeah. somebody else yeah. and making it look like Indiana Jones. So it, it really is, in a way, deep faking. They've been doing that for stuntmen for, you know, decades yeah. now, though. Face replacement. But usually the stuntmen don't get FaceTime. Fair you know point. what I mean? Yep. So, like... I would I would say that whole portion of him back in the the Nazi era, you know, World War II thing, that whole section of the movie is not Harrison Ford at all, because there's no way you think an it's old a man, man or I think it's just a double entirely because there's yeah. no way for Harrison Ford as an old man to do all of that. I mean, the whole thing would have had to been a different person. So I think they they did use a lot of CGI in this movie for Harrison Ford. But at least for that that flashback part. Body double. Yeah, a complete body double and face double and everything. Yeah, that was the impression I got. A lot of people told me that the CGI was super obvious before I even went to see the movie. I did not notice it, to be honest. I was able to get sucked into that first scene Mm -hmm. where it was supposed to be the younger Indiana Jones that would have been around the time of the Last Crusade when the, the Nazis were trying to take over the world and steal all the things do the victor go the spoils as the nazi guy says in, in that section of the movie yeah so no i did, was not bothered by that i know several people said it was distracting i it did not bother me i it's, i wasn't bothered by it either yeah so I, that was a plus cuz i went in you know with the lower expectations that you know in harrison ford really didn't play a lot of the movie and it was body doubles and cgi and all that but it didn't really bug me I think that a lot of movies now, you know, they superimpose doubles, like you said, and and stunt doubles and all that kind of stuff are used a lot anyway. There are very few movies, unless Tom Cruise is in them, that that don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Tom Cruise is going to keep making movies until he's 200. I saw the preview for the next Mission Impossible, and I'm like, when is he going to stop doing Mission Impossible? He's getting too old for this. But anyway, we're not talking about Tom Cruise. We're talking about Harrison Ford, who is actually really too old for this. And we're going to get into this, but this is, you know, because it is an initial impression, I'm going to mention it here and then we'll talk about it as a theme later. I felt like there were some character motivations that were really lacking in this movie. If, If there was something that I was going to knock this movie about, it was that there was a serious motivation missing for the female lead in this, she, Helena, she just seemed to like switch from one side to the other very rapidly with no transition. And that super bothered me even before I even walked out of the film. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, what? She did what? <laughs> I, you lost me somewhere along yeah. the way. So I feel like there may have been, I'm, at least I'm hoping that there were some parts of this, crucial parts of this movie that hit the editing floor that we might be able to see in a director's cut. I'm hoping because otherwise this was a complete opportunity lost for a good redemption arc for a character. And uh, Zack Snyder cut. Yeah. So yeah, this this was, in my opinion, a failed opportunity to really work her character well. And yeah. it was bad. It was so bad that it was the thing I walked out of it going, you know, what happened to her character? So you don't want to leave somebody hanging like that. The only other really thing that you know, real obviously stands out about Indiana Jones is the music. 
And I do <laughs> want to play some of the score. But before I do, this is, believe it or not, a John Williams score. We haven't talked about John Williams in a long time. I suppose he's still been out there composing movies. But the people that replaced him over the last couple decades, you know, they've been doing all the big movies. And we've been talking about them for a really long time. But John Williams, believe it or not, is still around. He's 91 this year. I just cannot believe that he's not only is he 91, but he is still composing movies. And of course, this one was easy because he already had the main theme that has held Mm -hmm. true for the last four Indiana Jones movies. He just had to pick it up and do some tweaks and rearrange some things and then, you know, have an orchestra play it. So I'm not at all downplaying the amount of work that goes into scoring a movie, but he did have some of it already done, thankfully. (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely going to play a little bit of the masterful music. John Williams is a master, even if all of his soundtracks do sound a little bit alike. He is still the master of this. Everybody else is a wannabe. So that music was great. I have to say the music adds to the nostalgia of this film. If any, if you've watched any of the oh, yeah. Indiana Jones movies, you know, all you have to do is hear that theme and you're like, you know, you're in Indiana Jones. So I honestly feel like the score outshone the movie by a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't rave enough about John Williams. I love his music. I was raised on his music. Yeah. Uh, everything from Star Wars and up, it's like, He really is. He sets the bar. Yeah, he really does. Everybody else is trying to reach it. And I will admit, I never saw the Crystal Skull movie. And I was told it was not worth it. And so he didn't miss that much. To me, this is kind of even though I think that there was some maybe relationship stuff that I missed by not seeing Crystal Skull. Mm -hmm. I think that this was probably the better sequel to The Last Crusade. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Crystal Skull had Shia LaBeouf as Mutt, his son, and in Dial of Destiny, we hear that he had enlisted to go to Vietnam and, and was killed in action over there. Oh, okay. That makes a little more sense then. It also ended with the the wedding between Marion and Indiana Jones. Which we find out they split up over the death right. of their son in this movie. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it informs a little bit, but Crystal Skull was all, it was all aliens and utter complete weirdness. And yeah. it was very weird. And it was actually, I want to say it was this movie that Shia LaBeouf started going all sort of off the deep end with its antics, too. So, hmm. yeah, he was actually well into that when we did, what was it? Peanut Butter Falcon, right? Mm hmm. And he yeah. he was in that, but he played a character that was sort of unhinged there, too. When, you know, Crystal Skull came out, there was talk, they were grooming LaBeouf for the role of Indiana Jones. But it was pretty clear that wasn't going to happen by the end of that movie. 
Yeah, we already have an Indiana Jones Jr. That was the the River adventures. Phoenix. Yeah, yep. yeah. I actually like that TV. That was it. Was a TV show. Wasn't I enjoyed it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a yeah, it was, TV series before yeah, it streaming. Really, yeah, it was. It was really good. I have to see if I can look that up and watch it again because that was actually quite fun. I went in with as few spoilers as I could. I I didn't know about the de aging. I I had only watched you know the trailers, and I saw some scenes in the trailers that I thought, oh, that they might have actually just had, you know, found footage, cutting room stuff that they reintegrated. And when I got to the de-aging and the deep faking and, and all, you know, all the CGI stuff, it didn't bug me at all. I I knew intellectually that it was CGI, but it was far enough away from the Uncanny Valley that it didn't really bug me. They've really gotten a lot better. I want to say the first movie that I first saw serious de-aging done in was either the first Ant-Man movie or Tron Legacy, where they de-aged Jeff Bridges. And there was also Captain Marvel, where they de-aged Fury. Yeah, that that was the early ones that, that really hit hard on the Uncanny Valley one for me, but Captain Marvel wasn't too bad. And I think that's just maybe because he had so much screen time. Yeah. But by this one, it really didn't trigger anything for me. I didn't find it distracting, really, at all. <laughs> Overall, I enjoyed the movie. Yeah. But it wasn't anything to write home about. It wasn't a great movie. It was a good summer popcorn movie. Didn't really have any, you know, beats for any of the characters that really made me like them more or like them less or anything like that. And it seemed very formulaic. It seemed like, you know, the the writers, they didn't really phone it in, but <laughs> they might have just, they did broad strokes and then said, okay, we got to get from here to here. Yeah. <laughs> travel by map. Yeah. But, you know, that travel by map thing, that was really an Indiana Jones thing anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was like used in the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways they were maintaining, you know, the the genre of the film, I yeah. think, with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it is. And I, I don't hold it against them by any stretch. I think the funniest use of travel by map is always going to be the Muppets. <laughs> but Ford plays Indiana Jones. For the movie, he would be in his 70s because this movie takes place 33 years after the events of the very first movie. And it just seems like we've had enough grumpy old men. <laughs> Whenever they bring an actor back, actually Harrison Ford in particular, because he was a grumpy old man when they brought him back in Star Wars, too. <laughs> well, that for, comes when your once. wife leaves you. Yeah. It's, it, 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 and, you know, he and Calista Flockhart have been married for 13 years, so apparently he is actually able to maintain a relationship. But <laughs> just once I'd like to see... I'd, I'd like them to bring back an older actor to reprise a role and have him be happy. <laughs> but then where would the story arc be? Yeah. I mean, if he starts out happy, <laughs> are you going to ruin his life then? Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, You know what? Watch him overcome adversity. I'm good with it. <laughs> and stay happy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have him smile through, you know, four funerals or something. <laughs> 
so the actress who played Helena, Phoebe Walker Bridge. I have never seen Fleabag, but I've heard of it. I was actually very pleased with her performance in here. I thought she did a really good job. I thought she was actually held back by the character's writing. Like you, I I thought the character was underdeveloped. Uh, badly developed, yeah. Yeah. It's like they started with a really hard, you know, a hard beat for her of love of money, motivated by money. Later you learn that it's because she's she owes people money, etc. But they have a lot of opportunities to show growth for her throughout the different, you know, scenes in the movie, but they never really make the effort to make it happen. And then when she's all soft at the end, it's like, how did she get there? It's like she falls from from super hard, calloused, and even willing to put Indy's life into danger. And then she just yeah. goes uber soft at the end. And you're like, okay, what happened? She she locked him in a room with armed assailants in the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. She had absolutely no concern for his life at all. So it's like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it wasn't it's like, believable. It was a jump that was not believable. And I really hope that there's something in the director's cut that hit the editing floor to <laughs> that redeems that because it was badly done. You and I have talked before. I love a good redemption arc, but this was redemption without the arc. Right. Which <laughs> made no sense. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like Hitler coming in at the end of World War II and, you know, kissing babies and saying, I'm so sorry, I'll rebuild everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was interested, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a theme a little bit later, but I was interested in, in how there was this undercurrent throughout the movie of it's not magic. It's math. Right. And for me, that always brings me back to how far beyond human comprehension God is. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I thought it was intriguing because, you know, the earlier movies don't seem to buy into that (laughs) philosophy. Yeah. That there is spiritual magic. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing was the second to last scene, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about in the themes. I think the story could have been better without it, without mm. their unexpected trip. I think if they had written the entire movie without that last bit, it would have been more believable. Not just believable, but if I feel like it could have had more emotional stake. Because you come out the other end wondering, you know, would it ever have worked? Yeah. But they had to give the villain, you know, his chance to affect the change that he wanted to affect. And that part was the culmination of all that formulaic stuff they had done. And I think if they had mixed it up at the end and not had that penultimate scene, then I think it would have been a good thing for the movie. Well, you know, I think it... You know, it is formulaic, but I think it's formulaic to what Indiana Jones does. Because if yeah. you yeah, if you bit, think yeah. about all of the other movies, the bad guy always gets the the thing, you know, in the end. And then that thing bites him. So that's what happened in this movie. You know, he got the thing and the thing bit him and killed him. Yeah, And that happened in the Holy Grail. That happened in the yep. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
So it's like when they get the thing and then that they misuse the thing and then the thing destroys them because they misused it. I think that's yeah. kind of the theme of Indiana Jones. It's like you must treat these things with respect because if you don't, these things will destroy you. And these objects of power from our past have to be handled with the proper care and the proper respect. Yeah. And I think that that is kind of the overarching theme of Indiana Jones. It's like yeah. when the bad guys get the thing, the thing, they use it wrong. I feel like that wasn't in the second movie, but the second movie was a real departure. Mm-hmm. And I disliked the second movie enough to not be willing to rewatch it to see if that was the case. Yeah, I'm trying to... Temple of Doom, I know I've seen it several times, but... It must be very forgettable because I can remember like the temple and I can remember, you know, some of the really horrific scenes in it, but I honestly don't remember how it ended. So it must have been very forgettable. It ended with short round saying, yay, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> so that's our impressions. Obviously, I think we probably have given a few spoilers already, but we, we've kind of quit worrying about spoilers. If people like, listen to our podcast, they probably don't worry about spoilers either. <laughs> So our the first thing that yeah, I'm going to slide right into our first theme because like like I said and like we've already hit home quite a bit there are some motivational problems motive problems with this movie I think Helena is interesting because when she pops in you know she's Indiana Jones's goddaughter and he obviously has abandoned her for many years because yeah he doesn't even recognize her as a grown woman and that may supposedly have played into her motivation that, you know, her father wasn't around anymore. She went to the bad end because she didn't have the guidance of Indiana Jones in her life. Her godfather's supposed to step in and be the father if something happens to her father. And obviously that didn't happen. And so she hasn't had good influences, but she had that archaeological upbringing. So she loves archaeology, but she uses it as a tool to get money and she doesn't care about the knowledge as much. And so right. her motivation is definitely all for the wrong kind of thing. And and then she teams up with this little boy who is a street thief. And they're like two wolves who have packed together to get after, you know, for the same wrong motives. And they kind of protect each other's backs. And it's interesting because, as we've already harped, her motivation changes at the end of the movie, and it doesn't make any sense. But from the standpoint of this movie, you know, all the way up until the very end, when she jumps on the airplane to rescue Indy, everything up until that point, she's willing to risk anything in order to get the stuff that she needs in order to sell it to make money. That's her her complete and utter motivation on every level is to get the money. And we do find out, as we mentioned earlier, that she does owe some very nasty people money. And that's why her motivation is for money. But at the same time, she's definitely very hard about that. So yeah, motivation is important. And it is something I've actually been thinking about a lot for a couple months. It's kind of been uh, on my mind a lot, because I've been kind of on my own, you know, like personal growth as a believer and a member of a church, I've been kind of struggling with the idea of why do we do church? What's the purpose of worship? Um, what what are we getting out of fellowship? You know, all of these things, they've been kind of knocking around in my head as I've been reading scripture and 
and seeing what God says about the motivation of men's hearts. And mm-hmm. I, I really think that is something that as Christians that we should be willing to look at a little bit more carefully, because especially in the Western church, we live in a very easy society. You know, we, we go to church and we sing and we, and we do all the church things and, and we have all the rituals and the traditions. And I often wonder, it's like, what is our motivation for doing all of this? And it's just a good reminder to look at what the Bible says about where our heart is supposed to be and how God yeah. judges the heart. Because, you know, wh- why we do what we do when it comes to church and just living our lives for the Lord, God sees our heart. And there was one uh, verse that really stuck to me as I've been, you know, reading a lot of the prophets and stuff in the old, you know, near the end of the Old Testament. In Hosea 6, 6, God spoke through the prophet saying, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And this was before Christ gave his life to replace the sacrificial system. And that's because you get to a point where you're giving those sacrifices and those burnt offerings out of tradition and not out of the proper motivation of the heart. And because of that, you go to Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 2, it says, all a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs your motives. And he knows why you're doing those things. It's not just because, you know, this is the system that we were brought up in, or this is the system that we have adopted when we became Christians. This is something that we're supposed to be doing, you know, for the glory of God. Our utter motivation should be for spiritual reasons, not for what we get out of it, not for joy or happiness or contentment or all of the things that are, you know, for us. So those might be byproducts that we get out of it, but that is not what God wants to get out of, out of those things. Here's a couple more verses for that. There's be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. That's Matthew 6, 1. And actually, that starts a whole section of Matthew at 6. I think it's like half the chapter that's all about you don't do this in front of men because you've already got your reward. You don't pray in in public because you've already gotten your reward from being seen by people. You don't do your charitable deeds in front of people, you know, to be seen by people and to get your reward from people, you know, patting patting you on the back for doing it. And, you know, Jesus kept hammering that home. This was part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's like, listen, these are not the motivations for which that we live a righteous life. It's not so that people see us and congratulate us for it. And then he concludes in Matthew 6, well, he doesn't conclude, it's later on in the chapter, he says, no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I think the actual in King James, it says mammon, which was a, a mammon, different yeah. God. Yeah. So it's not just money, it's it's the, the serving of self, basically. You can't serve yeah. God and self. And then in Mark 7, this is a longer passage, but it's also Jesus speaking. It's Mark seven eighteen through 23. And this is to the apostles, because they came and asked him about some teaching that they thought was a parable. And he's like, and this is what he says. He said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. 
From within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) So Jesus didn't, you know, he was like, the motivations come from the heart, and that heart then fuels how we interact with the world. Yeah. And then in James 4, 1 through 3, going back to one of my favorite books of the Bible, it says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I mean, when James was writing this, he was not writing it to unbelievers. He was writing it to believers. So that's a reminder that when we fight and we disagree with each other and all of those passions, it's because we're asking with the wrong heart, with the wrong motive. And sometimes our disagreements in church and among, you know, other believers is because we are going into things with the wrong motives. And so this is something that, you know, I'm just kind of sharing a little personal journey that I've been going on for, you know, two or three months now, just trying to understand where my motives are, and how that fits into the motives of my fellow believers in church, and whether we're all pulling with the same strength on the yoke, you know, like we're all in, we're all yoked together for the work of God. It's just something that's been on my heart. And I would love, I mean, if if our listeners could come and into discord and I'd love to hear how other people think about this because it's, it's something that's been on my heart a lot. I would love to hear how other people think about that in the relationship of the fellowship of believers in church and, and how worship fits into that and all of that. Do you have anything to add? (laughs) You know, when you talked about the fellowship and what part enjoyment has, I was reminded of the Westminster Shorter Catechism and what's the chief end of, of man. And that's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mm -hmm. And, You know, I am not sure offhand what scripture they're referencing there, what scriptures, because you know it's going to be more than one. But I I trust that they chose their words carefully. And, you know, part of worship to me feels right when we are enjoying it. Right. And sometimes it's the old hymns for me. Sometimes it's the newer stuff. One of the ones that I like that I'm not particularly sure about is 10,000 reasons or something like that. But I always like the the old ones too. Yeah. It's not so much the music choices that I'm, I'm talking about when yeah. it comes to worship. I think that for me, it's more of what is the purpose of, I mean, you know, our worship is like the aroma, the sweet aroma of the sacrifice that in the Old Testament, when they would burn the sacrifices and the uh-huh. aroma was supposed to be like a blessing to God, you know, it, it was a sweet aroma a smell that would, that was of a repentance and love and, and all of those things that the sacrifices were supposed to represent to him. And it, it just seems to me sometimes nowadays that, and I'm not saying this is true in every church, 
but it's something that I've been struggling with is that our sacrifice of praise is no longer a sweet aroma to God because it's not done with the correct motivation, which brings us back to this. It's like we're trying to call the spirit in and to raise the spirit and to be, I don't know, it's just really hard for me to put in words. It's something that, that I've just been struggling with for a while now. And it's like, what is the purpose of our worship and praise? And, and also, our, the Western church has, has put those two things together. Praise and worship are the same thing, and, and they're not. Praise and worship are not the same right. thing. And, yeah. and so I think that, you know, we think of worship as being music, but that's not what worship is. And praise, yes, is music, but worship is not always music. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we've just kind of maybe lost sight sometimes in some of the churches you know, lost yeah. sight of, of what the purpose. Certainly. Yeah. So anyway, it is a motivation thing for me. And, and I'm not going to discount anybody else's motivation. Uh, it's more been an examination of my motivation and whether it fits with the motivations of other people in, in the fellowship. Yeah. yeah, I understand. So I'm not trying to say, you know, that this music or that music is bad, though. I do have kind of recently taken a stance against things like Hillsong and Bethel and mm-hmm. and, and some of the stuff. But it, it's not because I think contemporary music as a whole is just evil. That That's not my position. It's more of the motivation. A lot of that music was money-driven. So if we're talking about what was the motivation behind creating that music, the motivations were not good. There might be some good lyrics in the, some of the songs, but the motivation behind the creation of those songs was not good. So it's like, it all comes back to motivation. So that's my hang up. I understand. Yeah. So before we go to our next theme, I do want to thank our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman, who continue to give out to us monthly. We would love for you to also support our podcast if you are financially able. You can do so by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash areyoujustwatching, whichever one is easiest for you to access. It, Patreon is set up to for monthly gifts, and if you give $5 or more, you will get your name mentioned in every podcast episode that you support, as these gentlemen have been mentioned. And we just thank all of our listeners for downloading and listening. And I mean, that is a support. If you just listen to our podcast, that is supporting us. And if you share right. our podcast with other people, that's even more of a support. Yay. And we really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> so Thank you so much. So the next topic is the one that I wanted to touch on. It's the only topic that I came up with for the movie. Because, you know, like I said, I sort of came out of this movie with a, eh, it was good type vibe. But I was interested in the fact that several times during the movie, they say something along the lines of something in the same vein as it's not magic, it's math. And the movie is based around this idea that they are putting together, and I'm not going to try and pronounce what the, the dial is called, but this dial of Archimedes, through which he not only predicts the position of the planets and, and everything like that, but he is able to predict the tears in time and where they will be in space so that you could, in theory, use them to travel back in time. 
and every time it came up, it's, you know, oh, that's magic. No, it's not magic, it's math. And I was interested in that because if you think back to the movies, the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's all adventure until you get to the point where the Nazis open the Ark and these spirits, these angelic figures, come out of the Ark and swirl around and then it turns dark as the angelic figures literally turn dark and start melting everyone. And meanwhile, Indiana Jones and, and his friends are have their eyes shut and their heads averted. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And he tells her, shut your eyes, don't look. I don't remember if there was any indication as to how he knew that would work. But then... You know, in Temple of Doom, there he's dealing with a witch doctor, and and the witch doctor reaches into a man's chest and pulls out his still beating heart without actually ever breaking the skin. And in the Last Crusade, Jones pours water from the Holy Grail onto his father's bullet wound, and the wound heals, and the bullet pops out of his chest. Yeah, <laughs> and the Crystal Skull ends with an alien spaceship taking off in front of their eyes. You know, there's well, like six science. of them. I mean, point. if you believe in aliens, that would be science. Yeah, exactly. You know, the whole series up until this point has been different things of wonder happening. And they get to this one. Helena asks Jones about it, and she says, and Jones responds, I don't believe in magic, Wombat. Wombat is what he called her. When she was a little girl. Yeah. yeah, but sometimes in my life I saw things, things I can't explain. And I came to believe that it's not so much what you do believe, but how strongly you believe it. <laughs> Which makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it's like... <laughs> the power of belief. <laughs> and even as they said the line in the movie, I was like, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> it was like they had this opportunity for a... You know, a character-defining line and missed it. Yeah. Utterly whiff. <laughs> All air. And that's the thing, is, is it does matter what you believe. Yeah, absolutely. This whole – and we mentioned it, I think, when we were talking about the last movie – this whole concept of shades of gray, you know, we all have our own truth and, and all of that. And it's mm -hmm. also, in a way, kind of that whole word of faith movement, either, too. It's like, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it really strongly, you know. Like, right, right. And that's such an evil way of looking at it because it does matter what you believe. And it's not the power of belief that does anything, it's God that does things. And, when he and chooses. how strongly you believe it matters not even a little bit. Not a wit, yeah. Not a, was it a jot or a tittle? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, two of the Jones movies are actually focused on biblical things, artifacts. And this one started out that way because they were after the Archimedes dial. They were after the spear that pierced the oh, side of Christ. Right. The yeah. spear of... Longinus or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's the name of the Roman centurion who supposedly pierced the side of Christ. And it turned out to be a fake, so then they just kind of dropped that and went somewhere else with the whole yeah. thing. You know, throughout history, we see all kinds of 
ways that mankind wants to grasp on to something beyond the natural. And, you know, back in Shakespeare, Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 5, Hamlet tells Horatio, who has just seen the ghost of Hamlet's father, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And using the word philosophy, he he is saying science. Mm -hmm. And there's been a a movement to start explaining everything away. And and that's what I think we're seeing in Dial of Destiny is, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, Arthur C. Clarke. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's sort of what they're saying is, oh, well, you know, if, if man can just work out the proper calculations, uh, we can travel in time, which is stupid. Yeah. I mean, Archimedes... And, you know, certain mathematicians and stuff, they were scientists. They were scientists of their era. Yeah, and yeah, sure. It, and it's okay. I mean, I don't have a problem with them looking at artifacts of mathematicians as objects of science rather than objects of magic and, and wonder right. and, and that kind of thing. That doesn't bother me nearly as much as, you know, explaining away spiritual and religious things at, with science. Right. But, yeah, and, and which they're not trying to do in this movie, which I did appreciate. At least, at least if they're going to, you know, take an archaeological thing of power, supposedly, and I put power in quotes. Yeah, air quotes there. I heard air them. quotes. Yeah, <laughs> it's at least an object of a mathematician who is actually not supposed to be a magical device. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't necessarily mind that emphasis in this movie because they are talking about something that is supposedly a technical scientific thing. Yeah. And, you know, until Christ returns, humanity is going to continue advancing technologically unless, you know, unless we break ourselves altogether. (laughs) With our technology, yeah. And there's, you know, the stuff that exists today to folks 100 years ago would seem like miracles. It would seem like magic. You know, and it's interesting because this is going to be one of my pet subjects, so you just have to to bear with me. (laughs) As a young Earth creationist, I believe that technology has been with us from the beginning. The evolutionary view is that man was very primitive, and then he has slowly gotten more intelligent, and we're at the pinnacle of human intelligence now. I actually believe the opposite. I believe that God created man perfect, and we have been devolving ever since. And so early man was technologically and and philosophically and even scientifically advanced. And we just don't see it because we don't expect to see it. So every time there are things in ancient culture that seem to be too advanced for the what we think ancient man was capable of, we mm. discount it as, oh, the aliens helped man do that. Or, you know, <laughs> the, all of like these the like weird, weird <laughs> hypotheses we have about how ancient man – I mean, there is actually – some evidence that some of the ancient people that lived in South America actually flew planes. I don't know that we can discount that when you look at the NASDAQ lights that were obviously meant to be looked at from the sky. So I think that sometimes... projection. (laughs) Well, I think that sometimes because of the humanistic viewpoint we have of ancient culture, we sometimes discount these ancient scientists and we don't give them enough credit as yeah, to what they short. were capable of doing. We sell, sell, sell them very short. And because of that, 
we tend to think that the technology we have today is somehow more superior than anything that's ever existed. And I'm not saying that they had computers and AI and all of the things that we have now, but a lot of our technology today are crutches because we're not intelligent enough to do it on our own anymore. Hmm. I mean, back in the 50s and 60s, we had humans who were computers, who did all of this math. They were literally called computers. They were literally called computers because they computed. And that's where the word came from. And mathematicians who could do high-end math in their head with maybe a pencil and some paper, or chalk and a chalkboard, or a stick and sand. I mean, (laughs) we have devolved so much mentally that we require our technology to be a crutch. We have to lean on it because we can't do it ourselves anymore. And because of that, I think that our idea of how smart ancient man was is completely polluted by that. Mm -hmm. And so, anyway, off my soapbox. (laughs) So the point that I wanted to get to was that even though it seems like technology continues to advance and we become capable of greater and greater things, like it's conceivable that within 10 years we'll have fusion, nuclear fusion energy, which could result in cheap, free, clean energy for basically everyone. No matter how advanced we think we are, no matter how far we get before Christ's second coming, it's still just a drop in the ocean compared to the utter majesty and power of God. Mm -hmm. We can't even begin to grasp it. And there are lots of scriptures that talk about the majesty of God. And I've used Job recently, but I wanted to go back to, you know, this whole idea of the Leviathan because the Leviathan in poetic imagery of the time, actually represented chaotic forces held back by God. So Psalm 104, 24 through 26 says, How countless are your works, Lord! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships move about, and Leviathan, which you have formed to play there. And even that acknowledges that even chaos, which could be thought of even as entropy, is well within God's control. I don't know where you get Leviathan as chaos. I'm not following you on that. I understand the point you're trying to make. Yeah. <laughs> Leviathan was most likely a very large animal that lived in the oceans that is extinct now. Um, I will provide the show notes. (laughs) It's commentary. Okay. I don't remember whose commentary, though, but... Yeah. I I believe Leviathan was a real creature, so that's why I don't follow. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's... it's, I don't see any reason why it couldn't also be a real creature, but... Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) It's all in God's control, and... The ability and capability of God is just so much, so far beyond what we can even imagine that we'll never be free of the supernatural because we are supernatural creatures and we serve a supernatural God, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. Because nature serves a supernatural God. So by definition, anything beyond nature is supernatural. 
Yeah, I think the the idea of humanism that they deny the supernatural, you know, it, it, it's actually kind of more of a Romans one thing as well. It's like, you know, the majesty of God is evident in nature. And those who choose not to see it are willfully ignorant. And you can't, you really can't let them off the hook, because it's all there, <laughs> plain to see. And I always like to go back to Romans one with that, because it's like, God is evident in the creation that he made. And yeah, you got no excuse. You have no excuse. Yeah. So coming right off of that topic is the topic of destiny, which I think is a really strong topic in this formulaic movie, because they do travel through time. The issue they have is that they travel through time in a preordained fashion. And Maybe they weren't planning on showing predestination in this movie, but in a way they do, because when they're searching for the other piece of the dial, they come across Archimedes' tomb and his skeleton in the tomb, which I'm not entirely sure there actually would be a skeleton that old, because Archimedes lived 2,000 years. 300 years ago. Yeah, yeah, before the time of Christ. So it was... I'm just not sure there would be skeletons still in there. But anyway, he's wearing a watch from the 1960s, I guess. Yeah, and yeah, I wasn't sure if the watch was from the 40s or the 60s, because it was left by a guy who lived in 1969, but he was dressed in his Nazi regalia from the 1940s. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. And then he also had an engraving on the side of the tomb of a bird with propellers on its wings. Which was kind of a prediction of the fact that when the Nazis get a hold of the dial, that they go back in time, that they fly their plane into the middle of of a war going on in Archimedes' time. And they get to meet Archimedes, and, and there's this whole line where Archimedes tells them in, I guess, what is that, Greek? Ancient Greek? Yeah. That they were always meant to come. And it creates, you know the watch that gets left behind and the vision of the dragons. That's what everybody's calling it back then is, you know, the planes flying around in a time when those things supposedly didn't exist. And so, you know, they are the anachronism that created the thing that sent them back in time to be the anachronism that created the thing that sent them back in time to be the yep. anachronism. So they were fulfilling prophecies. They were fulfilling the prophecy of their own coming. So it's that whole concept of, what has happened in the past has already happened. So if the future somehow happens in the past, then it becomes part of the past that creates the future. Mm -hmm. So there is no way that as the Nazi character in this movie, Dr. Waller, Waller, pronounce it the German way, Waller. (laughs) Smith. No, Schmidt was his... His cover name, yeah. Cover name, yeah. He wanted to write the mistakes. He wanted to fix the mistakes that Hitler made. Hitler made, yeah. Yeah. So his idea was that he was going to go back to before Hitler failed to win the war and fix those mistakes and take over in Hitler's place because he was the one who knew how to do it better. So his idea was that you could go back in time and fix things. And, And that was, I think, even Helena's thought was that you could go back in time and fix things because she asked, you know, Indy if, you know, if he went back, what he would do. And, and he said he would stop his son from going to war. So yeah. that was how we got that backstory. 
in all of that, you know, the title rings true that they're talking about destiny, you know, like, what is our destiny? The dial was supposedly going to allow them to pick different holes in time and somehow count back somehow and, and land in the right year. Mm-hmm. But really, all it did was drag them back to when they were supposed to fall into Archimedes' world and give him the key that he needed to create the dial so that he could create the dial in the future for them to use to get back to him and so, and I guess win the war for him because they, yeah. they had a, an well, influence on the battle that was going on. Well, they, they didn't win the war, though, because yeah. the Roman soldiers ended up taking away, you know, three quarters of the dial, right? So they must have fallen... I, probably should have looked up the actual battle that they they were Yeah, what we would know of it, because you realize that history is tainted, so even especially history that old. Yeah, this this would have been around the time of, like, the Trojan War, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of what we know about Greek culture comes from narratives, and, and they did have historians back then, but it's like, it's not as complete as what we have of biblical history because the biblical history is so well recorded and maintained in the bible but a lot of the greek and and medes and 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 early roman stuff is you know iffy (laughs) it's like whoever wrote the history books is the one who chooses what history gets recorded it's not supernaturally protected exactly yeah so yeah, yeah, it's just a a weird twisted way of looking at how town travel would work because and I think I've mentioned this before, but there is a an interesting series Randall, Randy Ingermonson wrote a trilogy called The City of God books and in those that's based on that concept that they go back in time. They actually the main characters of the book follow a bad guy back in time who is trying to assassinate the apostle Paul. And it turns out kind of like the twist at the end, they don't come back. They end up being stuck in like AD 60, AD 70 in Jerusalem. And right after Paul was there and arrested and sent to Rome and they live out, you know, what happens to Jerusalem in the fall to the, you know, the, the crucifixions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that would have been the the rise of the Maccabees and Masada and all that, too. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, a really bad time. But they anyway, this couple ends up living through all of that. And so the, in the first book, they go back and they stop the assassination, but they get stuck because they use a, like a wormhole to travel back. And it was a one way trip and they don't they can't get back. Because mm-hmm. once the worm wormhole shut down, it can't be reopened. And they traveled from modern day Jerusalem, and it, they were forced to shut the wormhole down for the Sabbath, and they couldn't reinstate it. So they were stuck in the past. Huh. And so anyway, the whole story is that, you know, that they went back in time, but then at the end of the series, or I can't remember if it's the end of the first book or the end of the series, the people in modern day Jerusalem, they were involved in an archaeological dig. And they were uncovering when she left the lady of the couple, she was an archaeologist. And when she went back in time, she was in the midst of they were digging in the city of like an ancient part of the city. And after she had gotten stuck in ancient Jerusalem, they finished digging out this mural. And it was their wedding picture done as a as a mural. And (laughs) It was like that was like confirmation for the people in the future that they ended up getting married and and staying together in the past because it was 
their wedding picture. So anyway, it was just really interesting. And that, you know, that that is something that a lot of people hold to and that Randy Ingramonson is actually a physicist. He's a Christian physicist and he writes Mm -hmm. a lot of science fiction. And I appreciate that, you know, position that, you know, it's like we can go back in time. But if we do go back in time, we're only fulfilling that we went back in time. All of that single timeline type thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's an interesting we'll way. Put, we'll put a link in, in the show notes for it. it. It sounds like an interesting series. It is. Their books are a little hard to find because they've been out of print for quite a few years, but they, they are good if you can find them in a library or something. That's a favorite way to show it, too. You know, the, mm-hmm. the timeline is cyclical or, you know, the fixed. Yeah. Yeah, everything is fixed because it helps to create conflict. Conflict and continuity. Continuity. Yeah. And, you know, it helps to generate a, a twist at the end. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, it was, it was him all along. Yeah. The the murderer was the murdered guy. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this goes back to every time time travel comes up, it raises the question it, for me of predestination versus free will. Mm-hmm. And I just point back to a God who can have both and not even bat an eye. Mm-hmm. He speaks to that in Jeremiah 1, where he's talking to the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah saying, God, I, I don't have any ability to speak. I am not your guy. And God responds to him, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. And everything that happened was supposed to happen because God Ordained it. He ordained it to happen, yeah. So don't have any doubt. God is ultimately sovereign. We encounter troubles. Yeah. And we'll encounter good times, too. Yeah. And eventually, we're going to die. We may die quickly. We may die slowly. But even when that happens, it's his will. Right. So don't fret. That's the best thing about being a Christian is that we can rest on the utter sovereignty of God. We just don't really need to be worried about all this stuff. And even when we see the world seemingly falling apart around us, it's like, I keep thinking, it's like, I could be anxious, I could be worried about this, but it's outside of my control. There's nothing I can do to fix anything. And when it's outside of my control, I can just leave it in God's hands because I know he's ultimately sovereign about it. So, and even thinking about, you know, the, the topic of the Sound of Freedom movie, which is child trafficking. This is something that's absolutely horrific that goes on in our our world today. And I think it's great that this movie is raising awareness about it. And I think it's awful that the mainstream media, the Hollywood and all of them are fighting so hard to kill this movie because it is something that we need to be aware of and do whatever small part we can to fix it because it shouldn't, it's an awful sin against humanity and it just shouldn't happen. But at the same time, I hold in my mind the fact that God is sovereign, and God's sovereign. Even in all of that, he's sovereign. I don't know why he allows abortions in the United States, but he's got a purpose. Yeah. He could wipe them all out. Part of it is just to let their evil exist so that he has a reason to judge us. Yeah. And thankfully, this life is not the end, especially for babies and youngsters. They they don't even have to experience this awful life. They get to go straight to heaven. So there's a blessing in that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we kill them because they get to go straight to heaven. That's, that's right, not, exactly. It doesn't make it right. 
it's just a, a blessing to think about that, that they get to go to heaven. All right. So before we finish up our podcast, and we still have one more topic to discuss, I do want to remind you that you can comment in our show notes to give us feedback at areyoujustwatching.com slash 142. You can call us at 513-818-2959 and leave a voicemail, or you can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. And we do request that you join our Facebook discussion group, though, to be honest, neither of us are in there very often these days. It's kind of a dead group. But it, you know, the more the merrier them if people came in and actually started posting there, it would liven up and, and we could, you know, be there. But we really want you to join our discord group, which you can get to by going to are you just watching dot com slash discord. And that is an invitation to join our server. And we would love to have you here in discord because that's where we're recording right now. If you were with us live, you could be listening in as we record. And this is what we do. You know, we, we discuss movies and we want to have you join us and discuss movies with us. That would be absolutely amazing. I also, you can get to the Facebook group by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community. Forgot to give that one. And we do ask once again that you share this podcast with your friends. This is a labor of love that Tim and I do for all of you. And we have seen our listenership kind of slide over the last year or two. We got really high during COVID, but then again, everybody was stuck at home during COVID. So that's pretty understandable. But we're still out here. We're still recording monthly and we'd love to have you listen to our episodes. All right. So the final thing that I wanted to talk about regarding this movie was obsession. And the reason why I bring this up is it does seem to be, I would think, not necessarily a major theme, but it's definitely a minor theme, that there are at least two characters in this movie that portray a type of obsession. And one of them is actually a good guy, and the other one is a bad guy. And so, you know, you get two sides of the same coin as to what happens when we get obsessed with things. So the first one is Helena's dad, and he, in the flashback at the beginning of the movie, he and Indy are trying to rescue this. Well, actually, I think they would probably prefer to rescue as much of the art and and archaeological pieces that the Nazis have stolen. But the one thing that they are after is this spear that supposedly pierced the side of Christ. But in so doing, they happen to interrupt the fact that the Nazis have gotten their hands on half of the Dial of Destiny. And when that happens, and they manage to escape through a bunch of adventure, Helena's father ends up with this half of the dial. And he is obsessed with it. I mean, utterly obsessed with it. For years, it looks like he digs into the myth and the legend and the history and everything he can come up with with this style. And because of that, it appears that he becomes a bit of a recluse and a very bad father (laughs) and husband, probably, too. You don't see his wife in this movie. And so Indy at one point is forced to come and take the dial away from him and a promise in order to do so that he's going to destroy it because part of that obsession is that he finds out that it's that it could be used as a weapon and so he wants it destroyed. Right. And then the other person who is obsessed with it is Dr. Waller who is a German Nazi. And he, of course, as we've already talked about in our previous theme discussion, has the idea that this dial of destiny can allow him to go back in time to fix all of Hitler's mistakes. Yeah. 
And so he is obsessed in a very bad way because he has very bad intentions. He's actually the one who's going to use it as a weapon that has Baz so concerned. So obsession is something we see a lot of in movie because, you know, it's like when you're on stage, you have to make everything bigger. You have to make it big enough for the audience to see from the back rows, like the directors like to say. Yeah. And they still do that in theater. And whenever they portray obsession, like they did with Baz, they, they make it an overwhelming obsession. And we've talked about it before in a number of the, the movies we've done. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to point out that obsession isn't just simply idolatry because, you know, we all fall to idolatry a lot of different ways. Obsession is, you know, a step beyond idolatry. It is a, really a mental illness. And the way the web defines obsession is obsessions are recurrent and persistent thoughts, impulses, or images that cause distressing emotions such as anxiety, fear, or disgust. And, you know, you see obsession in obsessive compulsive disorder, and you Mm -hmm. see it with manic depressives, and it can seem like it destroys lives, and it has. But a lot of times it is a chemical imbalance that can be treated with medication, which is really yeah. cool. Yeah. And sometimes it's even spiritual. Yeah. There, there are people who struggle with it on a, on a spiritual level. But all of it, regardless of its source, regardless of, of its treatment or cause, it's all a direct result of the fall. Mm-hmm. So it's all based in sin. Perfect man was not created to be obsessive. Right. So when we're encountering people who have obsessions in in our daily lives, we have to remember that they are every bit a victim as everyone else. And unfortunately, and this is going to sound slightly heretical, but unfortunately, just accepting Christ as their Savior is not going to fix it. The only thing that is certain to fix it will be when... We are all made new. Right. And when the earth is made new and sin is cast away. Right. Yeah. It is true that it isn't just faith in Christ that takes it away. Right. But we do get help with it. So it's not like... Part of it is medical science. God created our medicine. I mean, he created the minds of man to be able to create medicine. It's really interesting. Just today, I started watching this show called, it's all about, I I forgot the name of it, but it's all about diagnosing like super rare illnesses, like super, like one of a kind kind of things. And one of the last episodes I watched was this guy that was just like burping uncontrollably for like months on end. And he went through all these specialists and all of this. They checked his stomach and all this stuff. And it turned out he finally went and got counseling. He went to a psychiatrist. And it turned out that he got so anxious about burping that he was at, he'd actually created a uh. nervous condition of burping, kind of like Tourette's. And she was able to get him on some anti-anxiety meds to reduce his anxiety and the burping just stopped. Huh. So sometimes, you know, the medication is necessary, but sometimes it's medicating something that we've created in our own heads. And so it's not always a chemical imbalance. Sometimes it's just 
we're not resting on the sovereignty of God. Right. I wanted to bring up this one verse. Uh, well, actually, it's three verses. First John two fifteen through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. We're talking about the fact that we all die, and then it says the one who does the will of God remains forever. That's because Mm. it's not talking about physical life. It's talking about eternity. And that's where it comes down to with obsession is, yes, there are disorders. There are mental illnesses that can be corrected with medication. There's all of those things. And we're not discounting any of those mental health issues. But when it comes to the idolatry of the heart and the way that we get obsessed with the things that should not have, I guess, our attention, maybe. It's like our unrestricted attention, <laughs> yeah, uh, undivertible attention. Stuff we shouldn't be setting our minds on. We shouldn't right, be exactly. dwelling yeah. on. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's what it's telling us here, that these are lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions. Those are like the underlying foundation of the sins that are the worst, like, you know, child pornography and or pornography period, or, right. you know, s- sex outside of marriage, adultery, and greed, and all of that kind of stuff, all of those come out of that. And that's because we allow the things of the world, we get obsessed with the things of the world. You have anything else to add to that? I no. kind of cut you off. No, 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 that, that's quite all right. It, we just need to remember that obsession is, you know, one of the consequences of sin. And while saving faith may not solve it, it will never hurt. No, no. It'll give us the foundation to rest on when we're struggling with these problems. And speaking as somebody who struggles with clinical depression, I know that I I would be so much worse off. Yeah. And what is it like uh, with Alcoholics Anonymous? Part, part of the steps is acknowledging that there's a higher power. Yep. I, I think that that is tantamount to being able to find your way out of that hole, is recognizing yeah. that, that God is sovereign over those problems and that you can rest on him and find help in him. So we're not telling you that God doesn't help. He does. He does so much. That is important part. Well, I hope that you've enjoyed our discussion of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And I kind of hope this is the last Indiana Jones movie. I think Harrison Ford's <laughs> yeah, no getting kidding. a little too old. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, let's let's stop with this one, please, guys. But yeah, it was it was a fun nostalgic movie. It was great to be able to revisit that. I just looked back and we have never reviewed an Indiana Jones movie for Are You Just Watching Us? Oh, interesting. We- since we started in 2009, we have never reviewed an Indiana Jones movie. So this was, it was a first. I will warn you, there is a chance that we may not be able to get an episode out in August. We're going to do our best. But if you'll be praying for Tim, he's going to be having surgery on his right hand, which is going to make things <sighs> and I'm a, a little difficult. <laughs> yeah. So we appreciate, we covet your prayers uh, for that and for his quick recovery. If we don't manage to get something done for August, we will try and maybe wrap as September one is in early so that we're yep. not making you wait two months. We will try and get something out soon. And if you have any suggestions of something that you would like us to review, 
feel free to share them in Facebook or Discord or the other ways via a text to 513-818-2959. You can text or voicemail that. We'd love to hear from you. So I believe that's it. Thanks so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.